Well, as you can see, we're coming back to the Revelation and to these uh, messages to seven churches. This is the fifth church in Sardis. I wonder if you've ever had um, the experience that we, uh, as a family, have had of coming back from holiday and being very disappointed. Uh, not, not our recent trip to India, there's not, nothing disappointing about that. But this happened quite a long time ago. We were living in southern Africa, in Namibia. We'd gone away for about two or three weeks holiday uh, down to South Africa, to Cape Town. And um, during that time, there'd been storms and uh, lightning and stuff going on in, in Namibia. And as a result, the power had gone off in our house, probably at the very beginning of the three weeks. So that when we came back, everything was still off. And you can imagine, you come back as a family, you're tired, all you want is a cup of tea or coffee or something, so we went to the fridge or to the freezer and everything was off. It was just stinking. I won't go into all the details, but you know, you lift the freezer up and it's swimming in stuff. Uh, obviously, there's no milk. Everything was dead inside, smelling, useless. What a disappointment. Now, I think that Jesus' words to this church in Sardis are a bit like that. They're probably the worst sort of message, in a sense, warning that he gave to any of the seven churches. Listen, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You look good on the outside, like the fridge, but open you up and, boy, there's nothing particularly pleasant about it. I don't think it gets much worse than that, does it? You are dead. Now, of course, as we'll see, it's a, it's a figure of speech because actually he goes on to say that there are still some who are alive and strengthen those things that remain. But anyway, the picture is, is very stark, isn't it? This is the rebuke that Jesus gives. Remember, this is Jesus speaking. Well, it's John recording the words through the Holy Spirit. But here's the Lord of the church speaking to his people. Here's the rebuke that Jesus gives. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, the frightening thing, I think, about that is it's not, it's not just that they're dead, but it's as though they're, they're not even aware of their condition. They didn't real, realize, really, how desperate their condition was. It seems they're unaware of it. They're carrying on as normal, so they thought. Everything's going well, so they thought. But in reality, says Jesus, you're dead. There's no power. Like there's no power going into the fridge, the electricity. And so, well, this is a terrible situation to be in as a church, isn't it? Or indeed as an individual Christian, as we might want to apply these warnings of Jesus to our individual lives as well. Look good on the outside, but not so good on the inside. So what's happened in Sardis? We know from the church history and from ancient history that, um, well, maybe they were following their, their city because we're told that Sardis had been one of the most important cities of Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, where these seven churches are situated. But it was a city that uh, its best times had passed. It had been eclipsed by cities like Ephesus, Pergamum, two of these that we've looked at already in the book of the Revelation. It was a town living in and living on its past reputation. It seems that the church of Sardis had perhaps taken on the, the character of the city because that's what's the problem with them. Their best days had passed. One commentator, one uh, 
writer says this. He called the church at Sardis the perfect model of inoffensive and ineffective Christianity. That's pretty bad, isn't it? The perfect model of inoffensive and ineffective Christianity. How can he say that? Well, we know from the text. Evidently, the Jews and the Romans, they didn't bother the church because the church didn't bother them. It was left alone because it lacked any conviction, it seems, to stir the waters or to, to make any waves in the society. That's why there's no mention here of any conflict with pagan deities, the Greeks, gods, and so on, with Roman emperor worship, or any Jewish opposition, which occurs in some of the other messages of Jesus to these churches. No, there was nothing at all. They were dead. They were unconcerned, and so no one bothered them. They fitted right in with a sort of spiritually dead society around them. So how's this happened? Well, it's not really clear, but maybe there's a clue in the phrase in verse 5. I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. I found your deeds unfinished. Now, the word used there for unfinished or incomplete denotes an attitude of indifference, uh, uncaring, half-heartedness, not seeing it through and not worrying about it. In other words, they were still operating, they were still doing things as a church, but their hearts were no longer in it, half-hearted. Routine had replaced reality in their spiritual experience. Membership of the church was just the same as membership of any social club, really. Church-going was a cultural, a pleasant social experience, but there was no power, there was no real connection with God. No power like the fridge, no electricity. The church had lacked this or lost this connection with the reality of their faith, with the Holy Spirit. And so the church, without the power of the Holy Spirit, although looking good on the outside, was on the inside lifeless, dead, ineffective. It's interesting, uh, as I was reading over this last week's, I read scholars, um, students of church growth have suggested some interesting warning signs that indicate that a church is in decline, signs of a dying church. Sadly, in Wales, we perhaps don't need to be reminded of them, but here's a few for us to consider, perhaps as we consider our own individual lives as well. This is what they say. Spiritual death begins, for example, when the past becomes more important than the present and the future. Spiritual death occurs or begins when talking about religion and the Christian faith matters more than knowing Jesus Christ. Or when convenience is more important than sacrifice. Or when tradition stifles every attempt to change or when personal comfort outweighs risky faith, or when church activity substitutes for the reality of a relationship with God. And I could go on. But I think those are some salutary indicators of a church or a life where we've lost connection, really, 
with the reality of our faith. So, how are we doing? How are you doing? How am I doing? Because it certainly makes me think. Does the inside reality match the outside reputation? Are we what we seem or claim to be? Well, I'm sure if we, we're honest, we have to say no. Sometimes there's a gap. And if that's true of you, and I confess it myself of me, then let's listen to what Jesus says to us. Let's listen to Jesus speaking to you, to me. What's the remedy that Jesus commands? He's identified a problem, but what's the, the remedy that Jesus commands? He speaks very simply to the church here, or to us as individuals. He says, wake up, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I've found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Hold it fast or obey it and repent. Did you get that? Wake up. Strengthen. Remember. Hold fast. Repent. So let's just think of that first of all. Wake up. Wake up from this sleep of death. Like a person, when they sleepwalk, they're completely unaware of the danger that they're in. Often reminded of uh, our youngest daughter, Beth. When she was in junior school, she had a good friend who lived locally, who sleepwalked. It was known. Uh, our parents used to discuss it. And on more than one occasion, her friend was brought back to the house in the middle of the night, two o'clock in the night, having been found down by the park, some half a mile away, sleepwalking, a little girl. And of course, they had to take measures when this happened quite a few times to try and stop her getting out of the house. But she could unbolt the door, she could go out, she could walk down to the park, and police brought her back. She had no idea what the danger she was in, sleepwalking. So what happens here? Well, notice what Jesus says next. And I'm told, and I read this, that when people, especially children, sleepwalk, you should wake them up gently. You shouldn't shout and scream at them. You shouldn't shake them. Wake them up gently so that they're gently reorientated. You know, I think I'm not reading too much into the text, but what a wonderful, gentle Savior we have because he doesn't come and shout and scream and shake them. What does he say? He says, remember. That's the first thing. Remember. Remember what you've received. He wakes them up gently. He comes with us such grace and says, listen, remember. Remember what you've received. What have you received? Well, you've received the gospel. This amazing grace of God. And how have you received it? What's the power? It's the Holy Spirit who's come. So that's the remedy that Jesus commands to return to remembering the gospel, to be reorientated like the sleepwalker, to come back to your senses, to realize what reality is. Why, have you, why are you doing this? The gospel, which is the best good news you could ever know and live by, the power of God for salvation to all who believe, the wonderful truth of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. His death on the cross for our sins so that we can be forgiven and brought back into a relationship with Him. His righteousness in exchange for all our failures. 
that covers us and presents us perfect before the Father. His victorious resurrection that reorientates our lives, gives us hope, helps us to live in, in freedom from the dominion of Satan and sin and death and hell, the gift of the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Remember all this, says Jesus. Remember the truth, the reality of all this. Hold on to it and obey it. And you know, when we truly come back to that, remember all of God's grace to us, and we see how we're living now, perhaps, the only thing we can really do is repent. If there's a, well, an ounce of spiritual life or breath within us, then that's all we can do is repent. Now, repent, of course, means to be sorry, but it means more than that. It means to turn around, to literally change your mind and your actions, as any of our children, when they were growing up, would know what sorry means. They would come and say, sorry, Dad, or sorry, Mom, after they'd said something, and we'd say to them, and what does sorry mean, Tom? Well, sorry means I'm going to try not to do it again. Yeah, that's, that's repentance. It's not just saying sorry and carrying on. Repentance is turning around. It involves turning back to the Lord Jesus, the one who is speaking to us, and turning with our whole hearts. Yes, we're sorry, but we, we want things to be different. Someone has said it's, nothing is more difficult than for a comfortable church to repent because who wants to change if you're comfortable? And I think that's true of our individual lives, isn't it? If we're comfortable, if we don't see anything wrong, then of course we're not going to repent. We don't want to change if we're comfortable. Most of us don't change unless there's real need, there's real pain involved. We don't pray sometimes until we're desperate. We don't seek God's help until we're in trouble. And we don't repent unless we think there's no other hope. And friends, you know, I know, there is no other hope, spiritually speaking. There is no other hope for you and for this world other than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So repent. Repent. When Martin Luther uh, nailed his 95 statements, his thesis, to the door of the church in, in Wittenberg in Germany, he, he didn't really anticipate the storm that was going to uh, ensue. Little did he know that he would begin a, a massive, a, a, an earthquake, a theological revolution, which has come to be called, of course, the Protestant Reformation. But listen, the very first statement of his 95 statements of things that he wanted people to consider, well, I think it rings as true today as it did in 1517. This is what Luther wrote. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he called for the entire life of the believer to be one of repentance. The entire life of the believer. So it's not just a one-off. It's an attitude. It's a, it's a daily thing. Confessing our sins, repenting, turning around, following Jesus. Why? Well, that's the sure strategy to keep spiritual life alive, real, vital. You know, I know, you can go for days, weeks, perhaps even months without real confession and repentance and prayer. And so you know how weak and 
ineffective your spiritual life can become. So to keep that gospel real and that life alive, there's this daily need, isn't there? For repentance, for faith, for following Jesus, for knowing the power of the Holy Spirit connected to the power of God. We need to daily reorientate our thinking to remember the love and the patience and the grace of the Lord Jesus. That we only love him because he first loved us. And so we want to come back and follow him. However uncomfortable, whatever the cost, because it's worth it. And then the other great truth, I think, about Jesus that we must remember, he says in this passage, is that he's coming again. That's what he's referring to here. He says, I will come like a thief in the night. No one expects the thief in the night, do they? So what Jesus means is that we must be prepared, we must be living for his coming at any time. Living in repentance and living in expectation of his return. And that's how to keep spiritual life real, vital, full of hope and joy. So that's the remedy Jesus commands. And finally, to, to further encourage us, Jesus speaks words of promise and reassurance. So the reward that Jesus promises, what does he say? Well, you see, it's not entirely bad after all in Sardis, as I said at the beginning. Jesus knows the truth. He knows there is still, there are still embers of, of fire of life there. He sees, yes, perhaps the majority of the church members, they, they're fading away, but he knows there are still some there who have not soiled their clothes, as he puts it in verse 4. Jesus loves the church in Sardis with all their faults and all their failures, and despite their treacherous condition now. And that's why he's still speaking to them and warning them and urging them to wake up, remember what you were, remember what you've received, and repent. That's part of his grace. He hasn't given up on them. He's still talking to them. He's still warning them. That's part of his grace that he still speaks to us. However far we've gone away, he still speaks to us. He loves the church. He loves his people. He wants the church to know a future that's better than their present experience. A future of life and joy now and a future of walking with him victoriously forever in the purity of heaven. I love that image, they will walk with me dressed in white. Reminds me, perhaps it was supposed to remind us, of the Garden of Eden, the paradise of God, before sin entered, where God walked with Adam and Eve. And there's that lovely image of just going for a walk, walking, walking in the countryside, walking in the garden, walking with the Lord Jesus. They will walk with me dressed in white. And then Jesus gives them another amazing promise and encouragement and affirmation. You know, God has a book. You won't find it on the, any bestseller list. You can't find it online or in the local library. Why? Well, in a sense, because this book is symbolic, of course. I'm not suggesting that there is an actual physical book in heaven. But behind the symbol, there's this serious truth. God has this book, the book of life. God keeps a record in heaven in which the names of all those who trust in Jesus are enrolled. And if you keep walking with Jesus, he says there's 
There's nothing that can take your name out of that book. Nothing. You're safe. Others can threaten you. They can oppose you. You can lose everything on earth, but you won't lose the reward of eternal life in heaven. Your name is written in his book, and it'll never be erased. Jesus is speaking, and he says, I will never blot out his or her name from the book of life. That's amazing, isn't it? Isn't that an encouragement? It is for me, knowing how sometimes my life is a failure in terms of God's sight. You know, when we behave badly, when we do stuff that we're ashamed of, or we say things that we're ashamed of, we act in certain ways, or we can even feel badly towards God, and there's all sorts of difficulties and doubts that can come into our lives, and we wonder, where are we now? What's happened to me? Am I no longer a Christian? Have I lost my salvation? No. No, says Jesus. Listen, remember, repent, and return. And this is the promise. This is a statement of the assurance of salvation. The Greek form here is a double ne negative. We could say, I will never, ever, under any circumstances, blot out their names from the book of life. Never, ever, never. Those whom God saves, he saves forever. Those who've received of his spirit and of eternal life, that's what it is, eternal life. So, take heart, Christian brother, sister, this morning, hold fast to the name of Jesus Christ despite all things that oppose you. And he will acknowledge your name before his Father in heaven. Jesus is speaking to us. And he's saying to us all, wake up, wake up. Remember, reorientate yourself. Repent and rejoice. Rejoice in the promise of eternal life, which begins now, but you can never lose. And so by God's grace, as we live like this, the name we have for being a Christian will match the inner reality of our lives as we follow Jesus.